Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, it's Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. On today's show, we're bringing you a conversation with an icon in California politics. Willie Brown was the Ayatollah as Speaker of the State Assembly and later the mayor for two terms at City Hall in San Francisco. Along the way, he mastered the art of building political power and keeping it. We recently sat down with Brown on stage at KQED Live in San Francisco. In the first part of our conversation, we'll discuss his entry into city politics, but first, his beginnings in a small town in East Texas. All right. Well, we have a lot to talk with you about because you've been around for 89 years, and most of those years are pretty interesting. Uh, You grew up in Mineola, Texas, which I think is about an hour and a half east of Dallas. Uh, What did it have going for it? Almost nothing. <laughs> it's a terrible little town, four to five hundred people. Uh, it advertises itself as being the pinto bean capital of America. And that's because they grew, we grew pinto beans. But we grew a lot of other things too. Uh, but it was also the place where you could. Uh, in spite of the fact that the county was dry, Mineola was one of the few places that didn't get the message. <laughs> and that was in part thanks to your family, I believe. Your uncles ran a little speakeasy, right? No, was that my grandmother. <laughs> well, it she really was my grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. Tell, Tell us, us about, about her. She ran everything. She ran everything, right? She Tell us everything. about her. She was, she was quite a woman. She was yeah. quite a woman. She was... Uh, uh, Part Indian, originally I think uh, uh, from uh, Oklahoma, um, and she looked the part, you know, with the braids and and, uh, and statue, uh, etc. Uh, but she was very much into uh, uh, running businesses, and so uh, yes, there was a a joint uh, called the Shack. Uh, and she also had a, a, a um, probably the only body in Mineola that had an underground space under the house. Uh, and that's where uh, the uh, alcohol beverages were. They called them chalk. They were, you know, bootleggers. Yeah. Hmm. And she had an arrangement apparently with the authorities. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we have a never rated. Never got rated. That's nice. Was there never rated. Yeah. Was there? How did that happen? How did that not happen? Well, I think that they probably projected that uh, 
the youngest um, son, uh, grandson, would go on to become... <laughs> would also not get rated. And we'll you can't have that kind of stuff <laughs> on your record. <laughs> we'll come back to yeah, that we'll theme get back, Yeah, bit, we'll get yeah. back to that exactly. Um, well, we mentioned at the top, I mean, you... At the time you grew up, this was a segregated town. I think that part of Texas was more like the South than the Southwest. Um, and then we have a photo here of when you were graduating from high school in the center. But, I mean, it was also a very I weighed about 120 pounds. <laughs> I was the shortest kid in a class of about 13 people. I was shorter than everybody, all the girls, everybody. It was terrible. Uh, uh, but, you know, I graduated. I often tell people, hey, I finished, I graduated from high school, yes. And I finished second in my class. But I never tell people there were only 13 people. <laughs> <laughs> Because you know you got hundreds of people out here in California graduated from high school. <laughs> the town was segregated, uh, and very segregated. Yeah, it was yeah. more than segregated. It was an enforced arrangement, literally, uh, and uh, it was uh, like you didn't never have any problem with the cops, the sheriff, the higher sheriff, arresting anybody. He'd simply tell my grandmother uh, who they wanted to see. And she'd send them. Wow. So there never would have been an arrest arrangement. Um, okay, so I know, yeah, this was a town, there was a lot of violence, uh, often, you know, against black people. There was a summer, I believe, in 1944, um, where a white man was killed after two white men assaulted two black men. And you've talked about that in the past. Can you just... Talk about how that experience, you know, living in this place, often being treated like a second-class citizen, um, but you got out. Like, how did that inform the way you thought later when you got into the political arena? Well, uh, let me tell you that um, the Collins family in Mineola... It's your grandmother's side. ...was a little different from the other black families in Mineola because the grandmother um, had an, an arrangement of some sort. I think she may even have had an affair with the higher sheriff <laughs> on a regular basis uh, because uh, there never was any uh, application of anything with reference to the uh, Anna Lee Collins family. Her name was Anna Lee Collins. My mother was named origin, many Collins, uh, and we didn't have the same kind of uh, confrontations uh, based strictly uh, on race. And then white people in Mineola uh, you know, didn't uh, seem as hostile as white people in Houston, Gladewater, Longview, Houston, and all the other places that we would interact with um, uh, because the, the, I think it was because it was so small and 
almost every black person in Mineola worked somewhere for white people. Mm. And as a result of that, there was, I think, less tension between whites and blacks in Mineola than in almost any other place in Texas that I was familiar with. But to Maurice's point, I mean, you did witness uh, other people in other places and the segregation and the racism. Did you bring that with you to San Francisco in terms no, of- No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. I didn't bring it with me. I, I, I was frankly shocked um, when I uh, began to encounter uh, some evidence of people uh, being treated differently on the basis of race. Uh, and it was not just black folk. It was uh, uh, the Asians, and the, the Latinos, and, and the uh, Pacific Islanders, and the people that I came to know as life unfolded for me in San Francisco. Uh, and and uh, it was uh, uh, when it was only black and whites in Mineola, black and whites in Mineola, and practically everybody knew everybody else. Mm. You, know, you, you know you know who uh, everybody worked for, you know who, where they lived, uh, you know what they did, you know what their families were, et cetera, and you know uh, what they were gonna get into, so to speak, because <laughs> they sometimes invited you. So it was uh, a little bit different, but here, it was clear that there was a distinct separation uh, between people on a race basis. Uh, More so here in San Francisco. Separated in the sense of treatment. Physical separation was greater in Mineola because you were on your side of town and white people were on their side of town. You did not go into the front door of any hotel, or you didn't go into the bar. You could do that in San Francisco, but you couldn't do it there. But the treatment was, uh, I must tell you, uh, uh, rather uh, alarming for me for San Francisco. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll hear from Willie Brown about his arrival in San Francisco and how he met a young aspiring politician named Dianne Feinstein. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book, I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just 
what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And today we're bringing you our onstage conversation from earlier this month with former Assembly Speaker and San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown. We just heard about Brown's childhood in tiny Mineola, Texas. Now Brown tells us about the unlikely clients who propelled his career as a young lawyer in San Francisco. So you came out here in 1951. You went to San Francisco State. You went April, August 4th. August 4th, pulled into town, came, your uncle Itzy lived here already. Um, But I want to jump forward a few years. So you end up going to law school. And when you get out, I think you found that the clientele you could attract was not necessarily what some of your white counterparts at the law school. Tell us about your early law career. Who are you defending? Well, uh, I ended up uh, having to uh, accept... uh, office space with a guy named Terry Francois. Terry Francois was, I think, the first um, black elected official ever in San Francisco. He was on the Board of Supervisors. Uh, may have been appointed. I don't recall whether or not he got directly elected, but I think he was you know, appointed. And I, when I graduated from law school, uh, I got a job uh, I got selected uh, to be a clerk, uh, well, Audible Carter, a federal judge here. No precedent for it at all for a black person becoming uh, uh, an assistant to a judge. Well, it so happens that uh, before the bar results came back, Audible Carter died. And so all the great plans that I had uh, to uh, become a justice uh, went right out the window because I literally had to go to work anyway, and there was no job. Black lawyers uh, could not get jobs. No firm hired black lawyers. That was out of the question. Uh, Offered you a partnership, anything of that nature. And, but he offered me a space in his office. And, and he said, uh, it's in the Fillmore on Sutter Street, 2085 Sutter. He said, uh, uh, and, and, you know, you'll have to try to talk to the preachers and the, and the doctors and uh, all the other black people in and around San Francisco because uh, your clientele will be black if you get any. Well, I 
accepted the opportunity uh, to uh, take the office space that he had at no cost to me initially. The first day he tells me that um, there is a case that he can't go on involving a husband and a wife and I should uh, go down and handle that. Didn't know whether or not to bring me any money. I went down and to represent the wife. And lo and behold, the husband was a guy I came to become friendly with and actually said his um, uh, goodbye at his funeral about a year ago. A guy named Charlie Walker. I uh, uh, represented his wife on behalf of my uh, senior lawyer in the office. And, <laughs> and Charlie Walker, uh, literally while the judge was talking and carrying on, Charlie Walker was telling me what he was going to do to me <laughs> when this case is over. <laughs> and I, of course, responded appropriately to him. <laughs> and the judge interrupted us both and said, uh, Mr. Brown, I know you're new at this, but you really don't, uh, you cannot engage in conversations uh, with your opponent. Uh, I said, well, he's threatening me. So the judge said, well, I, I don't want to hear any more about this. Why don't we take a recess and said to his lawyer, well, why don't you guys go outside and talk? So we go out in the hallway. And as soon as we get in the hallway, at that time, the, the uh, courtrooms were in City Hall. Uh, I got them out of City Hall. <laughs> but they were in City Hall. And, and so we go out in the hallway, and Charlie Walk comes over me and says, man, what's the matter with you? I said, what do you mean, what's the matter with me? You were threatening me. He said, you know I didn't mean that. <laughs> so what do you mean you didn't mean that? He said, you know, you're new at this. And he started telling me about what he does and how he does things and whatever you. So I said, let me tell you something. Uh, that judge is going to give you unholy hell. Your wife is going to get everything she wants because I'm going to make the request. I'm going to make the plea, and I can do it. And so if I were you, I'd stop talking to me. I think you ought to go talk to her and see if you can't convince her, the two of you ought to settle this and keep all of us out of it. No. And he did. He went over and he talked to Ann. And uh, sure enough, we went back in the court and told the judge that the, there's apparently been a reconciliation between the two parties, etc. And believe it or not, it was Ann, all these years later, when he died, who called me and said, uh, you got to uh, uh, say good words about Charlie. They Hill. stayed together? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Willie Brown, marriage counselor. Who knew? So you, uh, early in your law career, you represented some other women. Well, I'm going to go on to that. Because <laughs> meeting Charlie Walker was important. Because <laughs> Charlie invited me to come visit the place where my uncle uh, had occasionally had me hang out. Uncle Itzy. Mm. Um, uncle Itzy. And during the course of conversation with Charlie, he said, to him, hey, what, what, you know, all these guys got his women working the streets. He said, I don't have any work in the streets, but I think you can make good money representing them, the women on the streets. And you had and a pretty so novel I became. A, a lawyer 
uh, got one client, and in the courtroom, there was a uh, judge uh, who was a very good judge, a smart guy, a Republican judge, believe it or not. And he, uh, he, uh, I, I went to court uh, with this one client, woman, uh, and I was like, maybe seven or eight down the line of people called for your clients. And the guy had a laundry list, and it was the hooker's court. And they had all these other lawyers, experienced lawyers, representing the hookers. And each one of these guys representing the hookers never, and I thought, understood the Constitution because Every person registered for engaging in that kind of conduct was a woman being prosecuted, and no males. And you can't do that by yourself. You, you, know, <laughs> you, you to my knowledge, takes two. And, takes two to tango. Yeah, and so, so when they got to me, of course, uh, I, I stood up and said that, uh, Your Honor, uh, I wish to impose uh, a motion. Uh, for uh, selective prosecution, and that would be unconstitutional because my client was being treated differently than the guy she engaged with. The district attorney said, uh, Your Honor, Mr. Brown is new and uh, <laughs> at this, and so just, in, just a minute. His name was Clayton Horn. He said, uh, Mr. Brown is right. There have been six or seven people, and not once did I see any man. And said, uh, explain to me why that is. So this, this, this district attorney named Art Schaefer said, uh, well, you're on a, you, you know, Mr. Brown is just playing a game. He said, no, that motion on selective prosecution is an important motion. And I think that, uh, Mr. Schaefer, we ought to put this over one day uh, so you can get prepared, because I assume Mr. Brown is really prepared. So sure enough, uh, walked out of the courtroom, and every other hooker immediately, with their pimps, came over and wanted to know if I would represent them, uh, because clearly I'd done something different than anybody else had ever done. And of course, the district attorney's office, uh, you know, treated me like I was a nothing, uh, because the next day they were not prepared. And uh, Clayton Horn dismissed the case yes. wow. against my client. And from that moment on, I had found a way to make a living. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did parlay your legal skills also into defending a lot of protesters who were staging protests against well, that was much later. businesses that- And they didn't pay. They did not pay. But, I, so I want to pull up another photo. This is you with uh, now Senator Dianne Feinstein. This, this was years later than um, the time we're talking about. But you first met her because you were staging a protest of your own, right? Well, uh, well I met uh, Senator Feinstein. Um, she was pushing, I guess you call it a buggy with kids, with a daughter, with Catherine in it. Uh, And it was the Sunday after the Saturday that I had uh, 
gone to 301 Christopher Drive up in Forest Hills. Um, my wife Blanche and a girlfriend of hers had uh, gone up to take a look at um, the model home. And they got there and, and uh, the people would not show them the model home. And my wife and her girlfriend were pretty aggressive. Girlfriend was a, a, uh, a connected to the NAACP and in, in the Blanche was connected with me. And, <laughs> and, and the combination of that caused them not to leave the living room of the home that was to be shown. The people showing the home left and went outside and stood somewhere across the street. But there was a telephone there. And Blanche used the telephone to find me. And Everett Brandon, the woman, uh, uh, incidentally, Everett Brandon's daughter, I think is now the chair of the uh, Port Commission. Mm. Her name is Kimberly Brandon. Uh, I appointed her in, <laughs> to the Port Commission back in 1996. But at any rate, it, the, they reached us. Everett and I were, he was a guy in NAACP. So we came to them and, and uh, decided that we'll stay in that place until it was time to close. And sure enough, at some point, late in the afternoon, they closed it and we let them know we'd be back tomorrow because Everett knew all of the techniques of doing that. And with that, uh, he said, do you have any white friends? Yes, I do have a couple of white friends. One of the white friends was Sue Beerman, who was uh, married to Art Beerman, who had been a professor out at SF State for me. Uh, and uh, Council for Civic Unity was an organization uh, that was concerned about the treatment of people in the city on the basis of race. And with that telephone network that they had, the next day, which was Sunday, we showed up. Of course, they didn't reopen the house to show to anybody. But Everett had made sure that everybody who knew anything about uh, press would be present. Oh. And pushing that buggy, Diane, Sue Beerman got connected through the Council for Civic Unity and what have you. That's how I met Diane Feinstein. Well, and, and you, you obviously have maintained that relationship and friendship with her. Uh, I've chaired, uh, co-chaired every <coughs> campaign Diane has ever been in. Yeah. And we, uh, every and we, one of them. And we want to come period. back to her, I think, in a bit. But you two seem like she seemed like an unlikely person, A, to show up at a race, you know, uh, NAACP protest, uh, you know, because she's, you know, kind of Pacific Heightsy, and, you know, she has that image of being, you know, not necessarily of the people. Um, did, did, do people get that wrong about her? Well, first and foremost, Diane was married to a guy named Jack Berman. She had three husbands, but Jack was the first one. Jack was the father of Kathy, who ultimately became a judge. I appointed Jack to the bench uh, through Jerry Brown many years ago. 
Jack and Diane, because Jack was a hangouter, a gambler, uh, drove a red convertible Cadillac. He was like, you know, the cat's meow, uh, and that marriage ended uh, fairly quickly. Uh, but uh, he, the friendship with Diane started from pushing the buggy. When she ran for the first time in 69, after being appointed, I think, to one of the parole, parole boards or some similar organization uh, by then the Governor Brown, uh, Older Brown. Pat Brown. Elder Brown. Uh, she um, decided she wanted to do something in public life. And she decided to run for supervisor, unprecedented, literally, for a woman to be running. And in those days, it was citywide, which is really the way it ought to be. You ought to be elected citywide. You were elected citywide. Whoever got the most votes became the chair of the Board of Supervisors because that person needed to be in a position if something happened to the mayor to become uh, the mayor, uh, period. Diane won that race for first place. I chaired the campaign. I was the only elected official that endorsed Diane's candidacy, period, for, for that job. Uh, and that relationship lasts to this minute. That was former Assembly Speaker and San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown joining us on stage at KQED Live. Stay tuned for more of our conversation, including Brown's playbook for building power in the state capitol and how he stayed out of the crosshairs of the FBI. We'll bring that to you in the coming weeks. For now, that'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Jim Bennett and Catherine Monahan, and our producer is Guy Marzarati. KQED Live's production team included Ryan Davis, Yon Martinez, and Danny Skarka. To check out details on upcoming live events at our San Francisco headquarters, head to kqed.org slash live. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit Donate dot kqed.org slash podcasts to 
to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.